This evening, we're going to begin a study of what we call the doctrines of grace. Those doctrines are sometimes called reform theology or sometimes known as Calvinism. They are basically synonymous one with another. And we've done this in the course of history of faith community church. We've done this every couple of years. And I looked back on the calendar, and it's been almost three years to the day since we've, we've done this. We think it's an important thing to do because they're very foundational to understanding who we are, who God is, what our salvation is, what grace is. They are very instrumental in the way you conduct church, the way you fellowship, what church is about, the way you evangelize. They're just extremely uh, important and have very strong ramifications, not to mention all the ramifications that they have on me as a believer before God, who I am, what this grace is, what it means when it says you are saved by grace. These are the doctrines of grace. These are the elements that make up the grace that save us. My practice, if you have attended this church for any length of time. My, my practice, my conviction, my, my preference is to take a book of the Bible and to just preach through it from beginning to end. I just think that is the best way to handle Scripture, to honor God's Word. It relieves the pastor from having to rely on his ingenuity of coming up with a sermon. I feel somewhat sorry for those who don't preach that way because every week they've got to think of something to preach about. Whereas every week I know what the text is. I may not know what I'm going to say, but I have a text that I must study. But it also saves the congregation from the preacher's hobby horses. talking about the same thing over and over again. When you go through the Bible, it makes you... um, cover subjects that you wouldn't cover. When David uh, Dickinson filled in for me a few weeks ago, he he, uh, covered Jesus turning water into wine. And he he listened to my message going through John, and I made the statement going through John, I would never choose to preach about Jesus turning water into wine. And here's David choosing to preach about turning water into wine. But that's not a subject I would think about. But when you go through a book, you're forced to cover those kind of subjects. This study is a little bit different. It's topical in nature. Um, It's what we would call systematic in nature. The Bible is not a systematic book. I mean, it doesn't lay things out and then just build on things. It is a, a living organism that's laid out. And as we learn truths, we have to take those truths and learn how to relate them to each other, what they mean. And we put them together. And that's called systematic theology. And so that's what we're going to be doing during this study. We're going to be taking the Bible looking at what it says on various subjects and put it together to understand all of these components with a picture. So it's almost like a puzzle. The Bible has all these pieces. Systematics is taking those pieces and putting them together so that you have a a picture that you can understand. We all have to do systematics. If you read the Bible, we, we do that automatically. You have to be careful with systematics because we we may construct a system And then we make the Bible fit into that system all the time. We have to make sure that we always 
place our system underneath the Bible so that the Bible is always judging our system. So if we come across the verse, it's like, well, that doesn't fit with my system. It's not the Bible that's the problem. It's my system that needs to be adjusted. So it's very important for us to do that. The truths that we're going to be talking about tonight are truths that have, some, like a tide, have ebbed and flowed throughout church history. There have been times where they've been very prominent and very advanced in the, in the church and in the culture. There have been other times where they're, they've not been visible at all. They've kind of just receded into the background and, and somewhat forgotten. We're in a period of time in, a, in our culture, in, in America, where I would say the, the doctrines of grace are, are ebbing is advancing, right? Ebbing and flowing. Is it the other way around? Ebbing and flowing. Okay. Is flowing. It is, is much more prominent today than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And that's a good thing. Um, but I say that it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, depending on what background you have, depending on what epoch of church history you've lived in, you, these doctrines may or may not be familiar to you. There's probably very few adult members in here that I'd be interested almost to take hands. You know, how many of you grew up being taught and knowing the doctrines of grace? And many of you say, I don't even know what the doctrines of grace are, so you wouldn't raise your hand. But if you grew up knowing the doctrines of grace and they were being taught to you, would you, would you raise your hand? Sort of one. Okay, and yeah, Mallory, you can raise your hand. I think you could, because you have been. And I'm going to talk about your generation in a minute. But, okay, we got two out of maybe, what, 75, 80, 100 people here. So if you're here tonight and you're like, well, I don't know what this is really all about, you're not alone because most of us didn't grow up being taught these things. Or if we did, they didn't make any sense to us. They just... They weren't out there. If you go back 20 or 30 years ago in the church, they, these were not prominent things that the church was preaching about. There were other issues. Some were very important, but these were not very prominent. Um, much of American evangelicalism today is, com- is completely oblivious to these doctrines. It, it, it's probably not at all uncommon for someone you could have an entire life of church experience and maybe never hear these doctrines. Now, that should be shocking because if these are truths, these are biblical truths, you say, well, I've just spent my entire life in church and I've never heard them, then you've got a problem. Either I'm all wet, I've got a problem, or the church that isn't teaching these has a problem. And that's, that's something that you are going to have to to. Um, decide. And I think as you hear these doctrines, some of you are familiar with them. Some of you have come to believe them. Others are still exploring them. And this is really why I decided to address this again after three years. In the, I would say in the last six or seven weeks, it, there were just numerous conversations that I was entering in with people that had questions or were just now being introduced to these. I thought, you know, it's time. We have a lot of new people. There's even people that have that have embraced these doctrines and are, and are struggling with them. It's time for us to address these truths again. They are so very important. And, and what's most important then is you hear these truths. And, I, and as I lay out scriptures to be 
like the Bereans in Acts 17, do not believe them Oh, just because this church believes them or because this guy said it. Be like the Bereans and search the scriptures, examine the scriptures and see if these things are so. I mean, is this right or not? Is this in the scriptures or not? And I think one of the most important things that I could do and is there's a, just a whole volume of literature on, on church fathers on this debate. And you, you all know the name Calvin and Luther. And we could we could talk about these guys and what they believed. But I am convinced the best way to learn about these doctrines is not reading Calvin or Luther or even listening to preachers, but actually engaging God's word and learning it from God's word. And if you do that, you will build a foundation not soon shaken. If you, if you read Calvin, I like that, and, and you're basing it because I'm John Calvin or John MacArthur or John Piper, it's not a firm foundation. So examine the scriptures to see if these things are true or not. It's very important for you to realize, because I realize a number of you, these are new. You're like, I've never been taught these things. I remember when I began to embrace them, began to see them. I was a young married man, and um, my dear wife honestly thought I was going crazy. She thought I was getting into a cult. She had never heard this stuff before. It was stranger. I mean, it was strange to me in, in a certain way. She goes, what are you talking about? And thought that there was something wrong with me. And it, so one, one thing that's very important for you is as we talk about these doctrines, it's important for you to realize that these are not new. This isn't a new invention. It seems like it because there's been such a dearth in the church. There has been the ebbing where it just wasn't in the church. You start hearing these, you're like, wow, that's... That seems new, and it was a revelation to me. This isn't new. Go back to the 19th century. You've got uh, Spurgeon. Go back to the 18th century. You've got Edwards and Whitfield. 17th century of the Puritans. 16th century, Martin Luther. 4th century, Augustine. I mean, this is, this is covering church history. This is not a new doctrine. If it were new, I would say Take your purse, your wallets, and run now, because we don't want anything new. I'm not interested in any new religion. What is interesting is as it is becoming more prevalent in the church, more churches are embracing these truths. We have, Mallory, you raised your hand. We have a generation coming up that are being taught these truths as a child. And most of us... Adults in this room didn't have these things taught to us. And I'm interested to see what's going to happen to a generation that grows up on these truths that were an absolute revelation. I mean, they were I mean, they were earth shattering. They changed everything for me. And my boys, my sons are growing up and that's pretty much all they've known. What is this going to be like for me, for them? Uh, My prayer is that they will come to grips with the majesty of these doctrines because these are beyond worldly there there's something far greater than the, the mind can can fathom it's very easy to become callous to these great truths when you know them from a child but one thing i've noticed in, in my boys as they've gotten older is these truths that they are acquainted with have made them very discerning they get out in the world and they have they've had to go to all kinds of different churches and and in all kinds of various circles, 
And these truths have given them a standard by which to discern and to evaluate other theologies and preaching and churches. And they can tell when something is really shallow or without substance or they know my son Caleb, he's out on a boat right now. And um, there was a group of guys that decided they wanted to do a Bible study. He was all excited. It's great. Let's do a Bible study. He was going to he wanted to do Romans uh, with them. Well, their idea of Bible study was a, a book study and they all voted. And it was this book called, I think, Love Does. And it's kind of popular right now. So they started doing this Bible study and Caleb's going through this Bible study. He said, Dad, it's it's just fluff. It's about these, this guy that does all these extraordinary things and everybody feels good. But he goes, there's, there's no theology in there. It's just fluff. And he knows that because he has been exposed to solid, deep theology. And so when you see this other poofy stuff, you're like, ah, I don't like that. It's like going, going back to bologna when you've had steak or something along those lines. The doctrines of grace are often put together, systematized by an acronym, and an acronym is TULIP, okay? And I've got a little, a couple of PowerPoints here that I'm going to show you. TULIP. <clears throat> TULIP, each of those letters stand for a unique doctrine of the doctrines of grace, and each of those doctrines form an integral part of salvation, You see, the T stands for total depravity, which is what we're going to look at tonight. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. You may hear somebody say, I am a five-point Calvinist. Well, that's what they're referring to. They're basically saying, I'm all the letters of the tulip. I embrace all five of those doctrines. There are people who say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. I, I embrace four of those points, but there's one I don't. I've heard of people saying, I'm a three-point Calvinist. My daughter-in-law said, I was a zero-point Calvinist. So that's, this is the standard that um, the doctrines of grace have historically come to know. There are other acronyms that have been used um, that, all, that demonstrate in a similar way the salvation by grace. Uh, one acronym that is we've used in the church is faith. Uh, again, similar doctrines, uh, just stated in a different way. Fallen humanity, adopted by God, intentional atonement, transformed by the Spirit, and held by God. Uh, it's a very, very great way of looking at it. There's actually, I believe, books out called Faith Unfolded, and this is the acronym that they use. Um, One of the reasons why I like an acronym like this is because the TULIP has become so ingrained in the debate that the words like immediately set people off. And this is a little less uh, offensive and you're able to to look at it from a kind of a different perspective. So faith is another great acronym. Uh, This next one came from uh, I'm not going to take credit for this. David Hallam, Muppet. <clears throat> meticulous. I, if you're taking notes, I would not record this one down. But <laughs> meticulous providence, 
God is very meticulous in the control of the universe, including our salvation. Unconditional election, particular redemption, perseverance of the saints, effectual grace, total depravity. There is actually a six-point Calvinist, and I've half-joking said I am a six-point Calvinist myself. All right, we'll come back to, to that in a minute, <clears throat> to the verses. What I want us to do as we look at this first doctrine, total depravity, I want us to look at the doctrine stated. Basically, we'll, we'll define what the doctrine means. Then we're going to look at the doctrine observed, meaning where do we find this teaching, this truth in Scripture? And then lastly, I want to look at the doctrine applied. What, what does it mean to us? What does it mean to our salvation? To how, how do we apply it to our lives? So the doctrine stated. We're going to talk about total depravity. I do think the word has a lot of baggage to it, and many people immediately begin to misunderstand Calvinism when they hear us saying people are totally depraved. Words change over time, and this is one. The first letter, T, the first point in the doctrines of grace, deal with man's Condition. Man's condition, and this is important, from God's perspective. What God thinks of people. Not what we think of people, not what we think of mankind, not what we think of ourselves, but we are going to look at God's perspective on humanity. And when we see What God sees when he looks at humanity, we will see that what he thinks about humanity, what he thinks about people, stands in stark contrast to what people think God thinks about people. It's very different. It's actually completely different. It's it's scandalously different. It's upsettingly different. Total depravity is kind of a stumbling block to some people because when we say that person is totally depraved, if I, I went up to Josh and said, you are totally depraved, I was like, whoa, what did I do to deserve it? Yeah, I'm not. When we think of totally depraved, we would think of a rapist, killer, some sociopath, you know, just a, a maniac. When we say... One of the first elements as we look at man's condition is that they are totally depraved. We are not saying that everyone, God looks at everyone, he thinks they're sociopaths, that they're they're totally sinful, that they, they sin as much as they can possibly sin. That is not what total depravity means. When you look around, when you look at our school systems, when you look at just the common wisdom of the day, the conventional wisdom of the day. We are taught, we believe, we hear it again and again, man is basically good. We're basically good. 
depending on what neighborhood, if you're in a suburb, you would say, you know, my neighbors are basically good. Now, if you're in the Northeast, you may not say that. You know, like, oh, my neighbors are totally depraved. But generally, you look at people and say, most people are basically good. Most people think of themselves to be decent people. They would not say they're, very few people would say they are perfect. But most people do not think that they are guilty of heinous crimes. They are not totally depraved. Because of their understanding of total depravity. Total depravity. If we're going to state the doctrine, what does total depravity mean? Total depravity does not mean a person is as bad as they can possibly be. That's not what it means. Total depravity means, from God's perspective, that man is thoroughly and completely ruined by sin. That's total depravity. He is ruined by sin. There's, there's two words that I would want you to associate with total depravity, and that is ruined and totally unable to save themselves. That's total depravity. I, I like the, the acronym fallen, fallen humanity. That we have fallen. We are not where we were. That's an appropriate metaphor. It's an appropriate description of our state. It's an appropriate synonym of being totally depraved. We are fallen. Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden and they were created in the image of God. But they sinned and they marred the image of God. It was Ruined. They, their status before God was forever changed at the Garden of Eden. Ruined. Every person that has ever been born has been ruined by sin. This is called original sin. Part of total depravity is that we are not born with a blank state, slate. We are born with a sin nature that we inherited from our parents, who inherited from their parents, who inherited from their parents, who inherited from Adam and Eve. That's where sin came from. Romans, and we're going to deal with this in Romans, Adam sinned and plunged all of his offspring into the slavery of sin. We are born with the sin nature. And if you've ever been a parent, you know you didn't have to teach your children how to sin. They do it what? Naturally. They just do it. I have a little little granddaughter, and I don't, I don't see it yet, but I will eventually, and I won't have to, her mom and dad won't have to teach her. She will learn because it's in our nature. That's called original sin. We are born with a sin nature that is inclined, in, inclined towards sin, to do sin. Our image, our, our uh, person has been marred, has been ruined by sin. Sin has made such an indelible imprint upon us that it has ruined our relationship before God. God hates sin. We tend to think, you know, it's the accumulation of sin that, that you know, it, you can sin a little bit, but if you start sinning more and more, then, you know, you're in trouble. Well, God hates sin, period. He doesn't just tolerate a little bit. And if it's too much, he hates sin. 
It's the presence of sin that God hates. And it's the presence of sin in humanity that renders us completely ruined. So your neighbor across the street that has you know, 2.3 or 1.3 kids and two cars and nice yard and goes to work every day in a white collar and, and uh, you know, they're ruined if they don't know Christ. They're, they're ruined before God. Ruin. It's not the amount of sin. If you take a glass of water and you just drop a little bit of poison in it, you don't, you don't kind of separate and say, well, that, at the bottom, I think that's going to be okay if I can get a straw down there. No, it, the whole cup is ruined because sin has permeated all that. that. That's because poison has permeated the whole cup. Sin has permeated our entire being, and we are born ruined by sin. Sin's presence has ruined us in God's sight. Somebody noticed my new shirt. Got the logo up here. Um, I know I look good in it and sharp and professional. But if there was like a, a cigarette burn right there, even though it would be just like a little bit, this shirt would be ruined. I mean, I would be embarrassed. I'd be holding my hand here the whole time and talking to you because I would be embarrassed about this hole in my shirt. I wouldn't say, well, that's just a little hole. It's just got little burn marks. It's not that big of a deal. You would look at If I came, you would, your eyes would go, oh, you've got a spot. right? It, just, it would be a magnet. It, it, the shirt's ruined. If you ordered a sub sandwich and there was a cockroach in it, you would not say, well, I don't think it traveled over here. I, that part's probably, it's ruined. And, and, and we, we know this by experience. We go, yeah, that's, but, that's, but that is the metaphor for our sin, sin in humanity, we're ruined. I mean, we're spoiled, rotten. It's, it's bad. There's nothing. And it's not just part of us. It has, it has permeated our entire nature, our mind, our intellect, our will, our emotions are ruined by sin. The other aspect of total depravity, not just ruined, but inability. And once you see this, we're going to, I'm going to show you several scriptures. And instead of having you turn all the place, you can write these down. We'll go through a, a litany of scripture. Because, again, I want you to see the verses in scripture and read through them and see what the Bible says. But I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. When we talk about total depravity, we are going to be talking about total inability. I mean, that means man is ruined and there's nothing he can do about it to fix it. Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, Adam, he said, you may eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall Surely die. That's total depravity. Now, we, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and they did not die. They kept on living. They lived 900 years. But God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. What died? Spiritually dead. From that point on, they were unable 
to help themselves. They had just polluted themselves with sin and there was nothing they would be able to do to extradite themselves from this situation. There's nothing they could do. They had the penalty of death on them and they could not save themselves. They were spiritually dead, spiritually unable, spiritually separated from God. And there would be no way for them to bridge the gap to come back into fellowship with God. And this metaphor of death is something that will be carried over even into the New Testament. So the Bible will speak of us when we talk about total depravity. We're going to talk about basically spiritual death. You are spiritually dead. Blind to your condition. I listened to one of my sermons a while back and I made the statement that very few people fail to come to Christ because they're too sinful. Most people fail to come to Christ because they're too righteous. They just don't have a need for it. That's spiritual death. They do not see their spiritual condition. They think they're fine. Insensitive to spiritual things, unresponsive to spiritual things, not interested in spiritual things, that is spiritual death. It does not mean a person is dead and they're just, it means spiritually they're a corpse. They're just dead to the truth of God. They hear it and they don't hear it. They see it and they don't see it. So total depravity then described or stated is that man is thoroughly ruined by sin and unable to help himself or to save himself. Now, I want us to see this doctrine observed from Scripture. Where are you going to observe total depravity? It's certainly not what the world teaches. The world does not teach that humanity is ruined and sinful and rejected by God. You listen to the educators. You listen to the psychologists. We're basically good. We're a product of our environment. It's our parents' fault. We're, you know, we're, it's, it's not our fault. We're not bad people. And then when they do encounter really sick people, they're like, how, how did that happen? I mean, where, do, where does this come from? They just have no, no categories for dealing with sinful people. The religions of the world don't teach total depravity. Basically, the religions of the world say, well, you need to be saved and here's a program and you do our program and then you'll get saved. Total depravity says you can't do anything. There's no program for you to do. Dead people can't do a program. They can't follow a set of rules. They're dead to these things. It's not what most people think either. We can't go to our neighbors. We can't go to... You know, polls, and you're not going to see total depravity in, in, in the prevailing culture. People don't think they're totally depraved. Well, they'll know there's some people, but not humanity, not everyone. The only place where we can observe the doctrine of total depravity is from the Bible, from God's perspective. And that's what's so unique about the Bible. We literally get God's perspective of people, of humanity, what God thinks of people. And so when we talk about total depravity, and some people don't like the word, but we're not talking about John Calvin's view. We're not talking about Luther's view. We're not talking about Augustine's view. We are talking about the biblical view, God's perspective of how God views 
people. We find this in the Bible. And honestly, I haven't obviously read every sacred piece of literature out there. I've read the Quran. I've read some of the other stuff out there. I've never encountered any sacred literature that describes people the way the Bible does. It's just not out there. It's very unique. We're going to go through these verses here um, that I'm just going to run through, Old Testament and New Testament, that will give us God's perspective of the Bible. Psalm 14.1 is a very unique one. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And then we get this phrase, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. This is, there's three, four places where the Bible says God, in essence, looks down over the corridor of human history. He's just scanning people. The Bible says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand. Who understand what? Spiritual things, truth, who seek after God. And what's the verdict? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is an incredible perspective that the Bible gives us. And as I will see, share with you later on, you're in that verse and I'm in that verse. There is no exception in that verse. God looks down and he looks among the children and there's not any good. There's not any. They've all gone their own way. No, not one. This is a great psalm, Psalm 51. And David, you know, if we were going to say somebody was totally depraved or really sinful, we would say, oh, David, you were. You committed adultery, and then you tried to cover it up, and then you committed murder. You're a sinful. You're a bad guy. And this is his confession, and I would spend more time in his confession because it's so thorough, so complete as he confesses his wrongdoing. But he gets here, and he's confessing his sin First of all, he calls it, in Psalm 51, he calls it my transgression. Very strong word. My rebellion against you. My willful disobedience against you. You know, when we do wrong to someone, have you ever done wrong to someone and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to? What does that mean? I'm not a bad person. Like, you know, if I went over, I already picked on Josh. If I went over to Lisa and I kicked Lisa, I go, I'm sorry, at least I didn't mean to. Well, I'm not a bad person. I, just, I accidentally did it. But if I kicked Lisa, then I'm sorry I really meant to do that. I wanted to kick you. I'm just a mean person. There's something wrong with me. I wanted to kick you. That's transgression. That's what David says. I did this. I rebelled. I did this willingly. It's not because I was an accident. I transgressed. I'm a bad person. That's, that's the confession. So when we confess to God, we don't say, God, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. That's not confession. Confession is, I, I am a sinful person. I did this and I wanted to do this. It's, it's awful. And then David says in this verse, look, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This has nothing to do with David's mother 
having an illegitimate birth, this is David saying, I was born wrong. I was born with this inclination to do evil. That's how thoroughly corrupt I am. I'm born to do evil. I just, it's in my nature. Very powerful description. Very powerful perspective. As God looks at humanity, gives his verdict of how he sees people. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Why Reformed theology will speak of original sin. The babies aren't born with a clean slate. They're not born all moral, just waiting in the balance for someone to. They are, they are estranged from birth. They're born with this inclination to do evil. It's just fascinating. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They don't have to learn how to fudge on the truth. They just start doing it right away. Because it's part of their nature. Enter not into judgment with your servant. No one living is righteous before you. Wow. No one living. In another psalm, David says, If you would mark iniquities, who could stand? There's not a person in this room, if God were to... Mark iniquities, meaning mark and judge iniquities. We would all be cut down because we have all sinned, every one of us in this room. Totally ruined, totally. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. In my project that I did for school, I talked about sin and its effects and how sin distorts us. It, it distorts our mind. It distorts our will. And this verse is so, in the hearts of the children of men, it's full of evil. There's evil. And it says, and madness is in their hearts. The word for madness is delusional. They're delusional. Sin distorts our perspective and the way we look at things and the way we look at people. When you have, and I just, I went through a various list of sin. If you have jealousy in your heart, it's amazing how it distorts your perspective. You, you start looking at events or people and you, everything is twisted. Lust twists reality. Sin causes people to be stupid. They do stupid things. It, it twists reality. They're delusional. Very familiar passage, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sheep have a master. God is our creator. We should follow him like sheep. We've all gone astray. Everyone just goes off to his own way. They want to do what they want to do. That's what the Bible says. God looks at humanity and they're like sheep. They should be following me, coming after me. And they just all go their own way. They do what they want to do. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See how deeply ruined we are by sin? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Literally a menstrual cloth. That's strong language. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, that's part of the problem with total depravity. We say, well, I, my, I got neighbors and they're nice and so and so. They're not Christian, but they're nice people. But the Bible says sin has ruined even our good deeds. They're ruined. They're, they're detestable before God. There's nothing about a polluted garment that you would enjoy. It, is to, it would be disgusting. You, you, you'd want to remove it from your presence. We all fade away like a leaf, and our iniquities take us away. The bondage of sin is another theme of Scripture. Here we see the inability that sin renders in us. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. There is no way that man can fix himself. He can't do it. That's part of the inability. You're hopelessly. The leopard can't change his spots. We can't change the color of our skin. You can't change your heart that is prone to do evil. Here is the verdict from the prophet Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's God's perspective of the human heart. Your heart, my heart. It is, it is desperately uh, sick. And notice, deceitful above all things. We have a whole society built on distrust. We lock our cars. We lock our doors. Um, we, we sign very thick contracts. If you go to the bank and you, you like refinance your house, it's like every time... The list gets longer because someone tried to do something, so they have to have another piece of paper. I mean, it is amazing. Why do you do that? Because people are deceitful. But what's interesting is it's not so much other people that you have to worry about. Your heart is deceitful above all things. I mean, our heart in us has an unbelievable ability to deceive ourselves. You're deceived by your own heart. Your heart is deceptive above all things. Which means, for everyone in this room, if that is true, which I believe it is, means we are all less righteous than we think and probably more sinful than we realize because we're deceived. And you look at various relationships and marriage relationships, it is amazing under the deception of the human heart how you, you have the spats and it's always the other person. It's just always that way. That's the problem. If my wife were to be different, I would be happy or I would be satisfied with her. I'd be happy with her. But she's the problem. It's a deceived heart. And this is the judgment New Testament. Light has come into the world. And here we see just the, the nature. People love the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. People love the darkness. They don't like the light. They're like cockroaches that run from the light. Inability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Without divine aid, no one can come to Christ. It's just can't. They're unable to do it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I could preach to a person, a lost person, all day long, but if they're dead, they do not accept the things because they are folly to him because he is not able to understand them. You can preach all day long and you're preaching to a corpse. And then here we have, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working. You were dead. The language of Genesis 2 certainly echoes in the pack. Paul will spend Romans 1, 2, and 3 unveiling the indictment against all humanity. We're going to start that on Sunday in our study of Romans. This is really the conclusion What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then Paul here begins to weave together a bunch of Old Testament passages, a number of them that we looked at. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And Paul goes on in the next five or six verses to weave together more passages of Scripture. But I'm just going to read to you Romans 3.19 as he comes to the conclusion of the matter. Now we know, Romans 3.19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This indictment against humanity is you are all sinful, lost, and ruined, and you have a debt before God. You're held accountable. All mouths are stopped. There's no more excuses. You're a sinner. The doctrine stated. So it's numerous passages where we find it observed in Scripture. Finally, let's just take a few moments to apply this, this doctrine. Massive ramifications to this doctrine. Ruined, dead. It has ramifications, obviously, in salvation. If God looks at humanity and says they are ruined, they're dead, they are unable to save themselves, then there is nothing that a person could do to improve their condition or to save themselves. If we are, if man is totally depraved, it destroys all these religious systems that give us these attempts to do a works righteousness. Well, if you'll do this and this, or if you'll do enough good and outweigh your bad, it destroys all that. When it comes to the matter of salvation, when you understand total depravity, which really is kind of the linchpin, if this is the condition of men, 
men are ruined. They are helpless and they cannot save themselves. The only possibility of salvation is found in two words, but God. God has to do something. We cannot save ourselves. God has to do something to save us. God has to act. And in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, that is exactly what Paul says happens. You were dead. God made you alive. So in the matter of salvation, it is important for us to understand that salvation is a complete supernatural work of God. God does something in salvation. He has to make dead people alive. He has to make blind people see. He has to do a work because we can't do it ourselves. When you read through the Gospels and you read the stories of Jesus, it's not a coincidence that Jesus heals blind people, heals deaf people, and he raises people from the dead. Why does he do that? That is exactly what he does in the gospel. He heals blindness. He opens deaf ears and he raises dead people to this day. It has a significant impact on our evangelism. It helps us realize what we're dealing with. When we go out into the world, when we invite our Neighbors to come to church to hear the gospel, you need to understand what you're dealing with. You are dealing with dead men and women. They're dead spiritually. Envision them as a spiritual corpse. It doesn't matter if the preacher tap dances, if you set the lights and play good music, it's not going to wake dead people. The only way that a dead person can come to life is God has to do something on the part of that. So in our evangelism, when you come to understand the condition of man, you realize that our sharing the gospel has to be empowered by the Spirit of God or it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be me manipulating people or me and my fancy arguments. It's going to be a work of God in the heart of that person. They're going to have to hear it and God's going to have to work. And so when you understand what the Bible says about people, they're dead, then you'll begin to appreciate what Paul says in Romans 1.16 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. When the gospel is preached, God makes dead men come alive. There is power in the gospel to, to raise people. They, they hear it. And they understand. Maybe not right away. It may be seeds planted, but it comes to life. I want you to see one, and we'll end here. I know it's been a long day for many of you, but I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 37. It might take you a while to find Ezekiel. That's not a book we turn to often, is it? Ezekiel 37. I think it will help you to understand this drama and redemption. For the Lord went to Ezekiel. He came to Ezekiel and he set Ezekiel down in verse 1 in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. Verse 2 says they were very dry. That's quite a setting. Skeletons everywhere. And the Lord asked Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
And this is just a crazy. Why would this even be in the Bible? I mean, he's set in a in a valley with a bunch of bones, disconnected bones, and they're probably sun bleached. Prophesy over them and tell them to hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. And so in verses 7 through 10, Ezekiel begins to preach, hear the word of the Lord, and, and the bones start growing flesh and sinew and they start coming together and they're living. Why, why would this even be in the Bible? But to demonstrate to us the power of God in the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, dead men come to life. They hear the gospel and it quickens them. They come to life and they believe, they, they hear it and they understand, and it's through the gospel. When you un- understand total depravity, when you understand the plight of a, of a person outside of Christ, and it may be your children, it may be your spouse, maybe your family members, co-workers, people you care about, you, you begin to understand how important it is there's nothing you can do there's time you know as a parent i just sometimes want to make my children do something differently just please don't do that but i can't change them when you understand the doctrine of total depravity it it will change the way you evangelize it change the way i evangelize my children I knew a prayer wouldn't suffice. Getting them to pair to prayer, that's not, that's not going to do anything. I knew that there had to be a transformation in their heart. Now, I think sometimes as parents, we may back away. We, we learn these great doctrines, and so we just, well, we just wait on God. And, well, I hope God does something. I hope God does something. And that's not appropriate. I constantly want to preach the gospel to my children and tell them to believe it, tell them to trust Christ, because the gospel is the power of God. It's not just a, well, just waiting for God to do something. Hmm, I wish he'd hurry. I preach the gospel to them because it is the power of God to salvation. But I don't manipulate them. I don't try to, you know, coerce them into it. That's not going to result in their salvation. It must be a work of God. We have VBS and Awana. I mean, it just changes the way we evangelize. We're not going to rush people into saying a prayer and so we can mark down, we got so-and-so saved. I heard somebody on the radio and they were with some child evangelism outreach and they held a camp and they said, we have 300 kids except Christ. And I, and I shake my head because I could get 300 kids to, to say a prayer easily. That's not a hard thing to do. What is an impossible thing to do is to see them genuinely transformed by the Holy Spirit and and have different desires and an an awareness of their own sin and an understanding of the gospel. That is impossible. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what I want to see. I'm going to probably stop here, but one area where total depravity certainly intersects is the whole condition of the will, the will of man. A big debate. When you talk about the doctrines of grace, when you talk about Calvinism, is the will. Some people say, well, I believe in free will. You say, well, I don't believe in free will. Well, I believe in free will. And, it, and there's been a huge debate about the will. I said, from God's perspective, we're ruined and we're unable to save ourselves. Some people believe that a person 
has to be able to choose. And if they can't choose, then God isn't fair. So they, they, a man has to be free. And others are like, no, man is completely dead. He can't do nothing. It doesn't matter what. So just you know, leave him alone. If God doesn't do it, they're going to go to hell. Just leave him. The issue of the will is huge. And I've talked significant about it in the past. But, but let me just say this very quickly. The fact is the Bible does present lost people as dead. They're, they're, the word Paul uses is necros, is corpse. But it's not so much because they lack the ability. It's because they lack the will. The, the, when you look at the Bible, I don't argue against free will with people. Because none of us in this room, we're not, none of us are robots. We know that. We, we make choices all the time. And, and to say I don't have a free will is, is like, I do too. I, I do things that I want all the time. I, I have a will. The problem is my will is in bondage to my evil nature. That's the problem. So my problem is my will. I do do the things I want to do. So I don't argue against free will. Men have free will. The problem is their will is corrupted and they are inclined. Everyone, when you look at the Bible, it is amazing. The moral culpability is paramount in Scripture. There is no, well, they're just dead in their sin. They can't do anything about it. When they sin, it is because they are sinners and they want to do sin. They are guilty before God, morally culpable. And again and again, the problem with men is they want to do evil. Um, John 5.40, Jesus says, you are not willing to come to me. You do not have eternal life because you will not come to me. It's your will. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 says, we walk, we did what we wanted to do. James says, lust conceives when we do what we want to do, when our wills are enticed. When you look at your friends and your loved ones who you want to be saved, it's not that they can't go to church. It's not that they can't read their Bibles. It's not that they can't pray. That's not the issue. What's the problem? They don't want to do those things. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to read their Bibles. They don't want to listen to sermons. They don't want to pray. The problem of humanity is their will. And unless God changes our will, He will and gives us over to the desires of our will, we will never come to a knowledge of the truth. And this indictment is not just an indictment on other people. It was an indictment on us. We, Paul said, were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. This is one of the elements of grace. These totally ruined dead people, we were once them. And until you understand total depravity, you really will not understand grace. I was one of those, ruined. I was going my own way. And so you say, well, I don't understand why I'm, I'm not totally, you know, I don't think I'm that sinful. There are many reasons that keep us from doing more sin. There are, there are restraints in society. Uh, upbringing keeps us. But if God were to ever give us over to our will, we'd be shocked at what we would do. If all men are dead, if all men are going their own way, how can anyone be saved? We'll look next week at you, which is unconditional election, where God chooses in that mass of corrupted humanity to save some. If you have questions about total depravity, you can email them to me or you can write them out, put them in an offering box back there. You don't have to close a check. 
just put the questions in there, and uh, we can address them. I was going to see if there were any questions tonight. I wanted to be informal, but um, we don't have the time. So let me pray, and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word and the instruction that it gives us and the, the truth that we have before us. This is your verdict on humanity. They've all gone their own way. They're all corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. Again and again, we see that indictment. And to realize, as Paul said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Why am I a Christian? Why am I forgiven? We will see it's because of grace, because of God's grace, because of God's initiative, because of what God has done. Lord, bless these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.